I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Last week we covered verses 4 to 7. And we saw there Paul address the matter of anxiety or worry, being unduly concerned about various matters. And we looked at the summons he gave us to rejoicing in the Lord, to being reasonable, to praying to God, bringing those concerns to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. And also um, looked at understanding that the Lord is indeed near in the midst of our, our anxieties and worries. And as we move now into verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, Paul is still dealing with the matter of anxiety and how to fight it, how to combat it. Uh, But this instruction applies more broadly than just to the matter of anxiety, just to, to worry. It applies more broadly to all of our battles, really, with sin in a a very general way. So verse 8 begins a new paragraph, at least in the in the English Standard Version it does. Um, But I don't think that Paul is just moving on entirely from what he has just written. As I said, this matter of anxiety is still in view. And one of the reasons I think we can be confident of this is that Verse 7 speaks of the peace of God that is with believers. And then verse 9 concludes that the God of peace is with believers. I think this is linking these two uh, sections together. So I'll say more about, of course, verse 9 in just a moment. So as I said, the instruction does apply to anxiety, of course, that's the context, but also more broadly as well, to battling virtually all sins. I was trying to think of some sin that, that wouldn't be helped as we battle it by what these words, uh, what Paul communicates to us here, and I, I can't think of anything. So I think this applies very, very broadly. So once more, as we settle in here to Philippians chapter 4, again, we remember, we know, we are aware that there are innumerable reasons why we fight worry. Why we are tempted to be filled with anxiety. Various stressful matters that confront us every single day. And we're forced to think about, to some extent, uh, difficult matters that occupy our attention, our thoughts. This is the reality of life in a fallen world. So this is something we all, to differing degrees, have to deal with and, and definitely do battle with. We battle worry, and of course we battle various other sins as well. And what we have here in verses 8 and 9 are very precious and helpful truths for this battle. This is really a very, uh, it's an immensely practical passage that we're looking at today. So let's read it. We're going to begin in verse 4. We'll read through to verse 13 and keep this all together. And then we'll uh, we'll get into verses 8 and 9. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So verses 8 and 9 that we're looking at today, uh, these two verses break down very neatly for us. It has a nice flow to it. It may not be immediately obvious, um, but it's there. So in verse 8, we have a list of virtues that are given, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, and so on. And this is then followed up with a command at the end of the verse to think about these things. Then verse 9 similarly has a list, what you have learned, received, heard, seen in me. And this is then followed up by a similar command to practice these things. So we have a list and a command, think about these things. We have a list and then the command to practice these things. And then this is followed, of course, at the end of verse 9 with a promise. And so our outline for today uh, rather simply follows this structure. And it is this. Uh, When battling sin and anxiety, number one, Pay attention to what you ponder. That's verse 8. Secondly, pay attention to what you practice. Beginning in verse 9. And then thirdly, pay attention to what is promised. So that's about as much alliteration as you will ever find from me. Uh, Pay attention to what you ponder, practiced, and to what is promised. So let's begin with verse 8. Pay attention to what you ponder. So verse 8 again reads like this. It says, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul cares here. God, through the Apostle Paul, indicates that he cares here what it is that you and I are giving our minds to, what it is we are setting our thoughts upon and meditating on, the things that we are focusing upon. What we think about is, very import- is a very important part of our spiritual battle in this life. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul indicates there taking erroneous thoughts, sinful thoughts, lying, untrue thoughts, taking these captive, capturing them, and instead making thoughts obey Christ or be in line with Christ and with the truth of his word is part of, of, of our spiritual warfare. That's what Paul's saying. These are weapons of our warfare. We have this tendency to, I think, be really weird about the concept of spiritual warfare. Uh, 
Paul is very clear here, a major aspect of our spiritual warfare is this battle for truth in our minds. In context, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about his battles with opponents, those who would oppose the truth. But an implication of this is that we should likewise seek to take our own untrue thoughts and beliefs captive in our own battles with sin, that we might think and believe rightly, being led by those truths, being led by what is good. Very often, most often, sinful behavior is accompanied by, and I'd say typically even preceded by, errors in our thinking, errors in what we believe. And so we want to correct that. Sometimes those errors are explicit. We really, truly have a, a bad understanding of something or of how God works. It could be an area of theology or something like that. And sometimes it can be implicit or maybe subconscious. We don't even really realize maybe we're thinking that way. But nevertheless, our thoughts are important. And so we want to be taking thoughts captive and making them obey Christ. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 10. Of course, sin is not simply a matter of thinking right, but it is a significant part of it. And here in Philippians 4, I think what Paul is doing for us here is saying something very similar, but with different language, different words, than in 2 Corinthians 10, the passage that I just read. What we have here are some directions about what it means to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. If you recall, of course, as we read earlier, as we looked at last week, Paul has said to put off anxiety, to put off being anxious about anything, as he said, and to put on in its place prayer. And now as we move into verse 8, he's adding another thing to put on, namely thinking about that which is good, taking our minds off of the worry praying to God about those things and other things, and then placing our minds not on, back on that worry, but moving on to the, the types of things that are uh, encompassed by this list he gives us in verse 8. Putting our minds onto these things, as he says. So in this list here in verse 8, we have seven virtues that are given. And I'll go through these in just a moment. But I just before we do, it's important to realize that these are all related here, uh, all of these, these virtues. In a sense, we can think of it as these give different nuances or different angles to the thing that we are to be contemplating. And we could summarize them, others have, and I think it's, it's helpful, as, as these uh, seven virtues are talking about that which is good. That's how, how, how we'll summarize it. But they're very much all related here as it's presented to us. So obviously, for example, if something is just or right, then it also is going to be true and most likely commendable. If something is lovely, it is going to be something that is uh, true, that is, that is right as well. But of course, not everything that is true is necessarily lovely or commendable. So there are all kinds of very ugly truths, very difficult realities that we live in that we could think of. Certainly it is very true that there are horrible people that exist in the world, murderers and rapists, many of whom have not been caught. And we know that many of such people who do get caught do not get a penalty or punishment that is really just, is sufficient to the crimes that they have committed. 
And so this is true. This is a true part of life. But is this what he's telling us to dwell on in this passage? No. Right? We keep all of these characteristics together. Additionally, often as we think about something like anxiety, it is certainly true that you do not know what tomorrow holds and tomorrow could hold something very difficult for you. That is true. That often is what we use to then justify our anxiety. Well, I don't know what's going to happen, and that's true. And of course, we need to keep going to the rest of the descriptors that we find here. So it's certainly true that I don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But what is true and lovely and right and all? God knows tomorrow. He holds tomorrow. He is sovereign. Any trial that comes your way, we sang about it, comes ultimately from his hand. He promises good to you even in the midst of it and so on. That would be an example of something that is true and lovely and right, etc. that we would set our minds upon. Similarly, as we consider this list, it's not that, okay, I need to, okay, I thought about something that's true. Now I need to go find another thing that's lovely. And oh yeah, I forgot about something that's excellent. And we have to, that's not what he's saying here. We take all of these things together. They paint a general picture of what it is that we should set our minds upon. What it is that we should think about, meditate upon. And so the list begins here with whatever is true. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. This refers to being truthful and genuine and to things that are in accordance with fact, in accordance with reality. Obviously, as we think about what is true, we think of the scriptures, God's word. Jesus himself prayed, sanctify them. He's praying for his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we think of the inerrant and infallible Sufficient word of God, sufficient for our day and age, as it always has been. Think about the promises of God that are contained within those inerrant and sufficient scriptures that are true. Moreover, as we read God's word, we discover, of course, it's God himself who describes himself as being true. Jesus said, he who sent me is true. In John 7, 28, he said, whoever believes in me elsewhere in John sets his seal to this, that the one who sent me is true. God is true. So as we think about thinking about things that are true, of course, the scriptures in general and specifically God, theology, studying and understanding more of who God is. Again, there's often a misconception. Well, what? You know, read a theology book. Well, how's that going to help me practically in my day-to-day life? Well, are you anxious at all? This is very clearly a, a, a balm and a help to dealing with that, to know who God is. Right? As we learn about the Almighty, the creator of all things, the one who is sovereign over all, who's orchestrating all things towards a particular end, who promises good for you. Okay, we hear and read of his promise to work all things for good. For those who've been called according to his purpose, how do we know this is true? We read our Old Testament. We see God's faithfulness ever since the beginning. When his people doubted him, when his people weren't so sure, when it was a long time coming till the Messiah come, even though he'd been promised way back in Genesis 3.15 and all these years pass and they're not, is this going to come to pass? Did God keep his word? Indeed he did. 
And so we bank that this is true and we, we count on. This is our God. This is immensely practical to know God. Jesus Christ, likewise, declared that he is the truth. The eternal son of God said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. John 14, 6. Revelation 19, 11 refers to Jesus as the one who is called faithful and true. He is true. He will keep his word. He will return. That's the context of Revelation 19, 11. The faithful and true Lord Jesus is the way to the Father. We have reconciliation with God. Access to our Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has died. He's risen again from the dead. That All who believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Might be forgiven. Sins wiped clean. And, 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 and made the righteousness of God as a gift of God. Granted entrance into God's eternal kingdom. How helpful to set our troubled minds on the truth of God. The truths of God revealed in his true word. The truths of the gospel being chief among those settling truths. What greater comfort can there be than to be saved, forgiven, and secure in the saving hand of Christ Jesus? And this is your greatest need. And if you're trusting in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've agreed with God about the state of your own soul, the reality of your own sinfulness, that you are indeed a violator of his law, worthy of his just condemnation, and you've confessed this to God, you've acknowledged your sins to him, and you realize that your only hope of being found righteous on that day when you stand before him, is the righteousness of God that is received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is your belief, you're putting no confidence in your flesh, as we talked about from chapter 3, and your own works in this matter, then even, even something as horrible and tragic as death itself is not the end for you. God will even yet do eternal good to you. This is your hope. And if you've not made Christ your boast... This is indeed your greatest need because you will face God on judgment day and you will answer to him for your sins. Your greatest need is not to shake off a little bit of anxiety on this earthly life, but it is to be reconciled to your creator. And when you are, when you seek refuge in Christ and trust in him, that will help you then reinterpret the world in which you live, and your various struggles in light of eternity. And it will indeed help, of course, as we are looking at in your battles with worry and anxiety. So there is grace. There is forgiveness. There is eternal life. Christ has died for sinners. And God calls all men everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would admonish you, if you've not, to, to delay no longer and to believe to turn from your sin and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these virtues that are listed here, these seven virtues, ultimately they reflect the very character of God himself, of our creator. It is he who determines the ultimate definition of these words that we're looking at. 
The world is going to have its own way of understanding these and defining these words. So, for example, the world will have an understanding of what is lovely. Are they any good at this? Often not. And in progressively getting worse at understanding what is lovely. So we must take, obviously, a distinctively Christian and biblical understanding of these things. In this list here, there's a few words that were common in, in virtue lists found amongst Greek philosophers, pagan philosophers. It would even predate the time of Paul's writing. And some of these same words don't appear very often, some, some not at all, elsewhere in the New Testament. And so some people conclude that Paul is calling the Philippians to really uh, live up to these Greek standards and definitions of these words. But of course, if we think about the context of Philippians, Paul is calling us, us, he's calling the Philippian church to something much greater than living up to the expectations of the pagans around them. You remember, he's, he's been calling us to understand and live in light of our heavenly citizenship. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says that. And again, chapter 3, verse 20, very clearly there. Our citizenship is in heaven. He's calling us to live in light of that as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so these qualities might have been spoken of in Paul's day and before him by morally careful pagans. And they might even be used and spoken of in our day. But as Christians, we need to filter all of these through the scriptures. Let God define these things for us. So whatever is true, he continues, whatever is honorable, this is translated elsewhere as dignified, that which is above reproach, worthy of respect and honor. Whatever is just, that is whatever is right, whatever is in keeping with justice and what is right. Again, everybody today is going to say that justice is important, but we must let the Bible be our guide in understanding what is what is justice? He continues, whatever is pure, that is without stain, blameless, holy. Whatever is lovely, things pleasing, causing delight, agreeable. He adds, whatever is commendable, things that are worth emulating, things that are worthy of respect and admiration. He continues, if there is any excellence, referring to excellence of character, So any truth promoting good and godly and upright character or any good example we find of it. If there's any excellence. And finally, if there's anything worthy of praise. Very similar to the above. That which is worthy of of emulating, of acknowledging, admiring. Paul's repeated use of the word whatever throughout this verse. And if there is anything shows us that he's speaking very broadly here. Speaking broadly of ideas, realities, teachings, concepts, projects, people who reflect these virtues. And as I said, of course, we must look to Scripture to know ultimately how to define each of these words. What is indeed lovely. And Paul says that we are to think about these things. The Greek word to think about means to give careful thought to a matter. To ponder it to place our minds upon it, to dwell upon it. We might say to meditate upon it. It also has the connotation of discernment. We are to discern the things that fit the above description by calculation, by weighing it. And then when we determine those things, we dwell upon those. We think about those things. 
And so if we consider our battles with sin, and particularly as we think about our battle with anxiety, worry is very much a battle of the mind. There, of course, can be more to the issue of anxiety. We talked more about it last week. But certainly, the battle involves one that takes place in our mind. There are some worries, of course, that are simply irrational. We just chalk, it's really just an irrational worry. Uh, I think there's different examples we could find of that. Um, I, I might become you know, really worried that a, a, a truck is going to drive through the front window of my house while I'm sitting in the living room. I don't know. And, and that would be possible. I mean, you can't tell me that that would never happen. You can't. You'd be lying if you said you can. You can't. And yet, the likelihood where I live, I mean, it's just really unlikely that that's going to be the case. I think that would be an example of something that's, that's really irrational. But there are worries that arise over very legitimate issues and concerns, very legitimate needs. But again, we tend to use that fact to justify our worry, to justify our maybe obsessing about a particular matter. Because, precisely because they are legitimate matters. Again, as we saw last week with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, even such legitimate issues as whether or not we will have food or clothing tomorrow are still not legitimate causes for worry, according to our Lord. So, if you don't know if you even have clothes for tomorrow or food, That's a pretty serious matter. I think we can agree with that. You wouldn't just say to someone in that situation, like, don't be ridiculous. That's irrational. No, it's not. You know, that food's important in life, as are clothes. And yet Jesus himself is telling us not to be filled with anxiety about that, not to be worried about that. And he goes on in Matthew 6 to point us to wonderful truths to occupy our thinking and to combat our worry about tomorrow. He points us to God's care for his creatures, particularly for his children. To God's knowledge of what it is that you need. And then to the priority of seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So as you combat worry, take it to God in prayer as we looked at last week. And seek to fill your mind with these things. With that which is good and grounded in truth. Things that would be settling to the soul. If we think about other sins, this also is very helpful. Sins like anger, greed, coveting, lust. As you battle these things and seek to put them off, we put on thinking about that which is true. Trying to occupy our minds with that which is pure, with that which is honorable. We see this principle of putting off and putting on throughout the New Testament when dealing with sin. And it begins with our thinking and our beliefs. So engage your mind in the battle. Be deliberate. Read the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Memorize it. Think upon it. Read good books that would promote these things. So pay attention to what you ponder. Secondly, in a world of sin and anxiety, pay attention to what you practice. 
as you battle sin and anxiety, pay attention to what you practice. In verse 9, Paul gives a second list, which he follows with a second command. And here we move from the battle in the mind to our actions. Not only this, but Paul moves from very general matters, whatever is true, to the particular matters that Paul himself taught and demonstrated to the Philippians. He says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The things that Paul has taught and demonstrated, he says, are to be remembered and then put into practice. The word received there, when he says the Philippians received this, it implies more than simply that they heard it, but rather it, it reveals that they've agreed with it. They've heard and they have accepted what Paul said. The word is commonly used in a semi-technical way in the New Testament to speak of apostolic tradition that is passed down to the churches and received. This would include, of course, the gospel message itself. Paul speaks this way in 1 Corinthians 15.1. And it would include the whole of apostolic doctrine, including their instructions upon pro- about proper living for God's people. For those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by his grace, how do we now go about life in the midst of a pagan world? Well, this is part of the apostolic teaching that has been passed on that Christians have received. And this is what he's talking about here. Given the context, the emphasis here is quite likely on their conduct and orderliness since he's calling them to practice these things. The church is to follow apostolic instruction and example. Paul has already called them, if you remember, uh, in Philippians to imitation quite often, as a matter of fact. Certainly in the matter of humility throughout chapter 2, he's pointing ultimately to Christ. He also uh, points to Epaphroditus and then to Timothy. And then in chapter 3, verse 17, he wrote, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And the context there was that of joining in this pursuit of holiness. If you remember, Paul views the Christian life like a race. If Christ has purchased me and is bringing me to holiness, that's where all of this is going to lead. It's going to be completed ultimately upon his return If that's where all this is going, if that's the reason for why Christ has died to forgive me and save me and and now form me into his image, and that's going to be completed when he returns, then I'm racing even now to, to obtain that as soon as possible. He's trying to throw off whatever is holding him back and and press on like a runner towards the finish line. If that's where God's taking me, this is where I want to go now. I'm striving for that day. He's acknowledging he's not yet perfect, but he's pressing on towards that goal. And he says to imitate him in this. And so again, the things that he has taught, the things that they have learned and received and seen in the Apostle Paul, they're to practice these things. Of course, for you and for me, we do not have the Apostle Paul here. But apostolic tradition has been left behind for us in the Scriptures. The Christian life, of course, has many difficulties along the way. But we are not left in the dark. In mercy, God has given us his word that directs our steps and lights our path.
It is a sufficient word for you and I, even in 2022. One of the common errors throughout church history is that, well, our day and age is different than days past. So that was okay back then for those people. But now it's, you know, it's first it was modern man and and now it's postmodern man. We're probably post that too. I don't know. But this constant temptation every generation to think, well, this doesn't quite cut it for our time. But this is God's word. And it is adequate to bring us to maturity. It is adequate to equip the man of God for every good work. So as we battle sin, sin like worry, it is important to remember the good works that you and I are called to. Again, as we talked about last week, worry tends to drag us off course. We tend to get paralyzed. Again, we saw that with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus corrects this. Worry has a tendency to draw us away from seeking the kingdom and to fret about and worry about all these other issues, even important things. Jesus draws us back, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we saw it again, with, we looked at uh, Martha, when Jesus rebuked Martha. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Right? Mary has chosen the good portion. Again, Martha was trying to serve the Lord Jesus, that's good. But she was anxious and troubled about it all. Whereas the most important thing was to sit at his feet and to hear from the Lord. And so we put off anxiety, we pray, we think about what is true, we think about what is good, and then what do we do? We pursue holiness in all areas of our lives. We What do the scriptures teach us to do and to be like? And we seek to obey that. We seek to do that. We not just seek holiness as some inner state in which we are very holy inwardly, but the kind that manifests itself outwardly, the kind we saw back in chapter 2 and verse Verses 12 and 13. We seek to practice what Christians are called to do and to be throughout the scriptures. To follow after the things that we have learned and maybe not seen with our eyes, but seen in scripture from Paul and the other apostles and appropriately applying, of course, the Old Testament scriptures as well. So I think this is a very broad exhortation, really, to us. But I think it is helpful. Again, when we battle sin... It's not just anxiety, any, any sin. We tend to often become very focused and fixated thinking about that particular issue and that particular sin. And we need to break out of that rut to pray and then to move on to set our minds upon that which is good. And then to carry on continuing seeking to live Christianly as, as best we can. Just before we, we move to the last point, I just want to say one more thing on this. It is, it is good, and the Bible teaches this, it is good to find corresponding truths and practices that will very directly combat the sin that we are battling with, the sin that we are tempted with. So an example of this is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I'll read this. It says, Let the thief no longer steal... So 
put off stealing, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So this is, this is corresponding truth that the thief needs to, to think about and to understand to help him in his battle. So the thief needs to set his mind on the goodness of honest work. Maybe he's believing a lie about it. He needs to think about the goodness of honest work, the goodness of generosity, working not just for himself, Paul says, but that he might even have some abundance that he could share with others in need. And then, of course, the thief, the, the recovering thief, the thief that is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is then to go on and seek to practice those things. Live in obedience to this as best he's able. So those are truths and those are practices that very directly assault the temptation to steal, to take from others. So put this off, put on a corresponding virtue. And this is good with any sin. To think, what truths confront the sin that I am engaging in or that I am tempted to engage in? What are the lies that I might be believing on this that I should put away and the truths that I should replace it with? And let me think about those things, to ponder those things and then seek to practice them, to live in accordance with them. And so it's good and it's biblical to, to try to find the corresponding truth to the sin that we're struggling with. But I would also say that Paul's language in chapter 4 here, in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians, also reveals that we should not just restrict ourselves to those truths that correspond to the particular sin that we're dealing with. He says we're to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, lovely, and so on. And we're to practice the various things that Paul and the other scripture writers have taught us. So you might be battling with greed, and it would be right to, to try to think of you know, the corresponding truths that will offset that. Maybe you wake up and your Bible reading plan has you reading in Leviticus. And your first thought is, well, how's this going to help me deal with my greed? Well, first of all, you might be surprised if you just carry on reading. But also, just read it and think, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about holiness, about how God works, about who he is? This would be... Setting our mind upon that which is true, that which is lovely, that which is good. And these things will help. So it's not like we just have to look up the verses dealing with anger because I'm dealing with anger and that's where we restrict ourselves. We, we can move. It's good to do that. We move to all of the scriptures, to all that is true, and we consider all of those things. Again, you might be dealing with difficulties at work, tempted to worry about those things. And yet, you, have, you, you wouldn't mind an evening to just relax and maybe try to deal with this in your mind, but you have company coming. And maybe that seems like an obstacle. But again, hospitality. This is a God-honoring Christian virtue. And so it's good to give yourself to that. So again, as we battle sin and anxiety, pay attention to what you practice. And then thirdly, and briefly, pay attention to what is promised. Verse 9 ends with this comfort, and the God of peace will be with you. As you meditate on what is good, 
and seek to practice what the scriptures teach you about the Christian life, there's a tremendous hope here for believers. The God of peace will be with you. Again, back in verse 7, the promise there was that the peace of God would protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But now the promise is that the God of peace will be with you. The God of that peace. It is not just that he'll give you a little bit of peace, but he himself is with you. We know that God resides with his people through the Holy Spirit, given as our helper, indwelling believers. Again, this whole idea of God's presence is something we sometimes get weird about. We desire it to be some sort of Mount Sinai experience, or Moses comes out of the tabernacle with his face radiant and shining, and that's what we envision. Unless we have some sort of super experience, then God is not with me, or this is some sort of lesser deal. We've, some of us have spent time in those circles. It's exhausting. And it's not true. You and I are not Moses. God's presence with us is not something that is always felt by us. But the assurance here is that he is with us. And this is medicine for the anxious soul or for the weary soul battling with sin. For the worrier, whatever tomorrow holds... Whatever ill that you may fear, the Lord himself will be with you. It's true. And so it's okay. In fact, it's right and it is good for you to let go of that worry. To, to, the best you can to stop turning it over and over in your mind. But to bring it to God in prayer, as we looked at last week, with thanksgiving. To meditate then upon truth, what is honorable and what is lovely and just. And then to seek to do the tasks that are before you this day in a Christian manner the best you can. And the promise here is that God will be with you. The promise is not that everything's just going to be real easy. The promise isn't that if you just apply a couple steps, the battle will be over. We may need to consistently seek to put it off, pray, and think about what is true and, and, and get back to whatever tasks are before us. Doesn't mean it'll be easy, but he will be with you. And I think an implication of this is he will help you. He will not desert you. He will see you through. So if the thing that most troubles you, that you worry about the most, comes to pass, will God abandon you in that moment? He will not. If you do not feel it, that doesn't mean he's not there anymore. This is where we need to, I'm tempted to think he has abandoned me. What does scripture say about this? That's not who God is. He does not do that. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to battle weak as you are through these issues, through these sins? He is with you, he tells you. And this is an eternal truth. 
We're not trying to make light of things that cause us anxiety. There are heavy matters in life. We know this. We understand this. I think probably everybody here has lived it to some extent. Heavy matters. But God will carry you through. And many here will testify to that as well. And have seen it. And he will continue to do so. Even in death, the believer has hope. We are sinful and we live in a fallen world. Battling sin, including the temptation to worry, is part of life for believers. And as we've seen, it's only going to conclude when the Lord Jesus returns or he calls us home. Ultimately, our complete sanctification of body and soul is going to be when the Lord Jesus returns and at the final resurrection. As difficult as dealing with our sin and all the anxieties we face, as difficult as it is, we are not without instruction. And and crucially, we are not without hope. The God of the universe has given us instruction. And he is with his people. And he does care. And he will see you through. So go to him in prayer. Meditate upon what is good. Carry on seeking to live your life unto the Lord as best you can. To the God who has graciously called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that you would help us. We need help. Father, we're thankful for your promises to be with your people. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to, to, to do what you tell us to do in this text, Father. This is not an oppressive weight you hang around our neck. It's, it's freedom. We can see it, Father, but we struggle to live in it. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us, weak as we are, to think about these things that you tell us to think about, to seek to live in accordance with your word. Father, make this a joy to us even. Father, for all who are battling with worry, with anxiety, it can be such a difficult struggle We can know it's not right and still struggle with it. This is true of all sins. Father, your word is clear about this. We read of it in Romans 7. Paul knew that battle as well. We thank you for this testimony that we would not be discouraged. Thank you that your word tells us that no temptation has seized us that is not common to man. None of this is unique to any one of us. Father, help us to believe what is true particularly your word. Help us to be desirous of knowing you more, of understanding more of who you are and what you've revealed to us in your word, even as we realize that a full comprehension of you is going to be beyond the grasp of us finite people. 
Father, you've given us your word. I pray that you'd make it a delight to us. Father, we pray for your, your help. We pray that you'd make us a compassionate people toward one another, towards those battling with various sins. Father, we're all battling with sin. So help us to be gracious, compassionate. Help us to, to carry burdens for one another, to pray for one another. Help us to be not ashamed of when we struggle and need help and need to reach out for help. Father, thank you that we have the church to help. So, Father, we just pray that you would glorify yourself in our midst, that even as we struggle, that you'd help us to cling fast to the promises of your word. And we do pray that you would help us to be people who are calm, that you would indeed protect our hearts and minds with your peace. And we thank you most of all that you promised to remain with us. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.